day and welcome back to the podcast. It's Wednesday, 24th of July, 1946, in a very hot and steamy Nanchang. Today we'll hear just a brief note from Betty because, as she explains, she's been deliciously swamped with mail and news from home. Of course, courtesy dictates that each letter deserves a reply, and we know that Betty is, if nothing else, courteous. So that adds up to a lot of letter writing. The letters and news from home, together with the light-hearted shenanigans and camaraderie of her colleagues, help keep us sane and balanced in what must be a truly distressing environment. From a distance, it's almost impossible to understand the challenges, sights and experiences Bet encounters daily. In 1946, our options for getting news and learning about other parts of the world are very limited, not at all like they might be in the space-age future of, say, 75 years from now, 2021. Newspapers, wireless, they'll probably call it radio one day, and letters are pretty much it. Unless that is, of course, you go to the movies. There, in addition to the feature movie, you'll see the daily newsreels which are shown at the beginning of every session. Short news stories, produced and shown as currently as possible, provide a first-hand glimpse of events in a world far distant from Australia. Indeed, if you were to pop into the theatre this very afternoon, you might well see this newsreel, produced by British Pathé and Reuters. It's titled... UNRWA HELPS FAMINE VICTIMS OF CHINA Vivid and terrible are the scenes in the famine areas of China today, with starvation following the ravages of nine years of war. Hungry women pull the plough, doing the work of the animals stolen by the Japanese. Famished peasants gather weeds for food, anything to keep themselves and their children alive. A tragic picture of China's fight for survival, a fight that will be lost without speedy help from happier nations. Answering the call, food ships of UNRWA put into port to unload tons of flour for those whose need is desperate. Much more is required, but this will at least save tens of thousands from starvation in this their country's darkest hour. You might like to take a minute or two to watch the original newsreel. It'll only take a minute because it's a minute long. You'll get to see some of the desperate work Betty and her UNRWA team is undertaking, and imagine if you'd be game to clamber up the side of that LST like Bet did. In the year 2021, the clip's available on YouTube. I've also included the link in the notes for this podcast episode. Before we hear from Bet today, a little more from the story of UNRWA. In our last chapter, you'll recall we looked at some of the challenges and extraordinary work being performed by those wearing the UNRWA nurse's uniform. That story continues. Chapter 16. A Bequest of Better Health. These UNRWA nurses, like the other technicians, were an integral part of its medical program. 
They, together with its emergency and long-range supplies, left a bequest of better health wherever they were at work. Epidemic control supplies are stockpiled as insurance against future outbreaks. Many of the gaps left by looting and destruction and long years of no replacements have been filled in by large shipments of surgical instruments, of bed linens, of X-ray equipment, and even of full hospital units and plants and raw materials for the manufacture of medical products. A few war-torn countries are now producing penicillin with the UNRWA equipment and supplies. A number of surveys were launched by UNRWA experts. Some examples. Tuberculosis, Europe's number one infectious disease. Death rates double their pre-war level, striking most frequently at children. UNRWA mass radiology for detection and its sanatoria equipment and nourishing food have helped, but there is far from enough of anything. Nutrition. Years of underfeeding is reflected in the reduced body weights of both adults and children, and in the failure of normal growth in children. Some children are stunted three or four inches. A 12-year-old looks like nine. The published findings of some of the UNRWA surveys, both in medical and in other technical and scientific fields, have added to the general knowledge on each subject. UNRWA supplemented its full-time medical services by sending special teaching missions into a number of countries. Notable among them were the series of facio-maxillary surgery teams sent into Yugoslavia from London to demonstrate plastic surgery, and the teams of distinguished lecturers who brought the newer knowledge of the war years to the colleges and universities of Poland and Czechoslovakia under the joint auspices of the Unitarian Service Committee and UNRWA. A group of medical teachers was also sent into China to start a training program in cooperation with the National Institute of Health. Beyond any question, public health and the medical professions were one of the greatest victors of the war and post-war period. UNRWA had a part in that victory. In every country in which UNRWA has a medical program, it left a bequest of advanced knowledge, equipment and pharmaceuticals, and of expanded and improved health facilities. We'll resume the story of UNRWA in further episodes. But now, let's hear from Bet. Nanchang, Changxi, 24th of July, 1946. My very dear godmother, I have not answered your letter written from Barrel on the 8th of June, but only two days ago I wrote to Uncle Fred enclosing a circular letter with some of the recent news. This will therefore be just a short note in answer to yours and to let you know that I am still well and happy. I'm glad you had your holiday. Always does you a lot of good, I think, your few days of leisure each year. I suppose Vic will be having quite a few holidays away from home now with the boys. I have to pull myself up with a jerk every now and again and remind myself that he is a grown-up young man now. I am glad he is having such a happy time at the Varsity. Today was a wonderful mail day for me. Sixteen letters, two magazines, my paper patterns from Mother, and a copy of the Herald. I do get such a thrill when my letters come in. 
The family are just super the way they write so regularly. And I have had lots of letters from you too and from Mrs. Souter and from oodles of other people. It's quite strange that you should have found another Betty Souter. I'm glad she spelt it with an A-R because I like to be the one and only somehow. There are times when I think that a move from Nan Chang is indicated or is to be thrust upon me. But at present, it looks as if I am here for the long time yet. But that's no hardship. In a couple of weeks, I may join a field trip and go out across the western part of the province to Honan. Honan, incidentally, is the most needy of all provinces so far as we're able to ascertain, and I'm quite interested to see if the grim reports are really true. We have to always see for ourselves here, since the Chinese have a habit of exaggerating circumstances in hope of getting bigger and better relief supplies. Can't blame them, of course, but it makes the job that much more exacting. I'm having a whale of a letter-writing night tonight, with the result that everyone is getting only one page, mother and dad accepted, of course. With at least 30 letters waiting acknowledgement, I just had to get down to it and make limitations on length of same. With ever so much love, Auntie dear, from your very affectionate goddaughter, Bettykins. Kiss. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry. The voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne. And the featured tune this episode, Dr. Lawyer Indian Chief, performed by Betty Hutton with Paul Weston and his orchestra. There's a doctor living in your town, there's a lawyer and an Indian too, and neither doctor, lawyer, nor Indian chief could love you any more than I do. There's a barrel of fish in the ocean, there's a lot of little birds in the blue, and neither fish nor fowl, says a wise old owl, could love you any more than I do.
speak. Hey!